Welcome back. I'm so glad you're able to be with us as we go back to the Old Testament scriptures together. This is the story of the Old Testament, week number five, Genesis 39 through 46 and Psalms 21 through 25, week five, the week for January 29th, and we're now in February, February 4th. Um, So this is going to be a great week of reading the Bible again. We're in the, we're right in the thick of the matters of the life of Joseph. Joseph has been sold into slavery in Egypt, we saw. And, uh, and then we saw, of course, the incident with Judah in chapter 38. Um, their lives are going to reconnect again uh, in the next few, in, during this week, actually. But now we find Joseph at, uh, has been sold, right? He's working uh, for Potiphar. And he's at work in the, in, um, in this, this house of Potiphar, a powerful man of Egypt. I'll read the very first couple cha- uh, verses of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Um, So we see here that Joseph is, uh, the Lord raises him from the pit and puts him in a a place of of trust, uh, a place of of, trust. confidence with this very powerful man. And this is going to lay the foundation for Joseph's continual story here, the the fascinating governing thing of how God rules over all of our lives. Uh, Before we go into Joseph's life um, in some of these specific chapters and such, I want to read this first of all about Joseph's life and as we think about what he's been called to do and what God is going to do with Joseph in a surprising way in selling him uh, to Egypt. And this is from Chad Bird, and it's called Joseph and St. Patrick, God's Unexpected Missionaries. Let's think about Joseph together, his life, which is what we're going to really be focusing on. Let's think about it from an overview perspective. It says, when Patrick was 14 years old, he was kidnapped during a raid on Britain and taken to Ireland to serve as a slave. After six years in captivity, he escaped, made his way back home, and eventually was ordained into the priesthood. Then, in his own ironic way, God sent Patrick back into the land of his former captivity to proclaim the freedom of the gospel. The boy who had been a slave was used by God to bring his word of salvation and life to a people who had been living in the darkness of pagan unbelief. Centuries before, however, the Lord had established this saving precedent. He used another teenager in another country to do his work. When Joseph was 17, his brother sold him into captivity in Egypt. After 13 years as a slave and prisoner, he was elevated to Pharaoh's right hand. God used Joseph to preserve the life of Egypt as well as the life of his own family during a seven-year famine. But more importantly, the Lord sent Joseph into Egypt to bring the light of divine wisdom into that darkened land. Led by God, Pharaoh made Joseph lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Psalm 105, 21 through 22. 
Joseph, who was full of the Holy Spirit, taught Egypt about the wisdom of God. He instructed these Egyptian pagans about the one true God. Joseph became a missionary to his former masters. In his commentary on Genesis, Luther speaks of how Joseph became God's spokesman of Egypt. David looked more deeply into this account and saw how salutary it was for the kingdom of Egypt. And he's talking about in Psalm 105, 21 through 26, David there is, is seeing uh, all the blessings that came uh, to Egypt from Joseph. How many fine people Joseph must have influenced. He taught the princes themselves and the king and even converted the whole court to the faith. He showed them the true worship of God. He likewise appointed priests to lead the way for others later and to instruct them. In short, he is a Christ in Egypt, and even more as Christ himself says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do. Christ converted one little nation in a, quarter of the, in a corner of the one land of Judah. He fed several thousand people with a small amount of bread. Joseph fed all Egypt and the neighboring nations and kingdoms, both physically and spiritually. In both Joseph and Patrick, we see the Lord of life at work. As we see him at work in our own lives, the God who can take two slaves, both of whom seem destined for nothing but death, and use their lives to bring wisdom and light and salvation to the lives of so many others, this same God can and will work in our own lives. We may seem destitute of hope, but the hope of Christ is stronger than our weakness. As he was for Joseph and Patrick, so he will be for us our companion in suffering, our life and death, our resurrection in the grave, and the Lord who uses us in his own way to bring blessings into the lives of others. So that's kind of as we think about Joseph's overall life, think about it also as him as a missionary of sorts, bringing the light of the gospel of God to Egypt, to a pagan nation. And think about the story of Joseph from that angle as well, um, an angle that we don't typically think about. But of course, first, what happens in Genesis 39, you know the story about Potiphar's wife. She sees him and she tries to continually tempt him to be with her. And here we see Joseph eventually um, says, I can't do this thing. I cannot sin against God. And he runs away. And then we read in chapter 39, verse 12, that he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. This is from Charles Spurgeon uh, called Exposed to Great Danger. In contending with certain sins, there remains no mode of victory but by flight. The ancient naturalists wrote, of, wrote much of basilisks, whose eyes fascinated their victims and rendered them easy victims, so the mere gaze of wickedness puts us in solemn man danger. He who would be safe from acts of evil must hurry away from occasions of it. A covenant must be made with our eyes, not even to look upon the cause of temptation. For such sins only need a spark to begin with, and a blaze follows in an instant. Who would carelessly enter the leper's prison and sleep amid its horrible corruption? Only he who desires to be leprous himself. If the sailor knew how to avoid a storm, he would do anything rather than run the risk of weathering it. Cautious navigators have no desire to see how near the quicksand they can sail or how, or often, how often they may touch a rock without springing a leak. Their aim is to keep as nearly as possible in the midst of a safe channel. Today I may be exposed to great peril, let me have the serpent's wisdom to keep out of it and avoid it. The wings of a dove may be of more use to me today than the jaws of a lion. It is true, I may be an apparent loser by declining evil company, but I had better leave my cloak than lose my character. It is not needful that I should be rich, but it is imperative for me to be pure. No ties of friendship, 
no chains of beauty, no flashings of talent, no shafts of ridicule must turn me from the wise resolve to flee from sin. I am to resist the devil and he will flee from me. But the lusts of the flesh I must flee or they will surely overcome me. O God of holiness, preserve us like Joseph that we may not be seduced by the subtle, vile suggestions of the temptress. May the horrible trinity of the world, the flesh and the devil, never overcome us. And so we see in Joseph also a helpful example and a reminder to us of the power of temptation, but also a wonderful example of how to flee from it and to turn from evil. But of course, you and I know what happens to Joseph. Potiphar's wife lies about him, and Joseph is thrown into prison. Uh, We read in verse 20, uh, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. This is uh, something now to think about with uh, with you. This is by a guy named Henry Law. He's an old writer, but he has this uh, about this section of scripture called "Numbered with the Transgressors." He says this: "Prison is a place of humiliation and of shame. It is peopled by those who are under accusation of crime or who are awaiting the sentence of outraged law. As such, the very name suggests ideas of infamy and chains and death." The inmates are the actual or suspected perpetrators of evil, whose name is a reproach, whom society casts out, who are as the noxious weed which must be rooted from the soil, and as the plague spot which it is peril to approach. But who is the prisoner into whose cell these words of menace? Within these walls of guilt we find a guiltless man. The blameless Joseph is here immured. Without offense, he is wronged as an offender. Without transgression, he is numbered with, with transgressors. Reader, the pure delight, the sanctifying feast of Scripture consists in this. In every page, the voice of Jesus is heard. At almost every turn, the image of Jesus is discerned. It is clearly so in the dungeon scene before us. Joseph, in custody, reviled for iniquity which he did not commit, foreshadows Jesus, who without sin is made sin for us. Yes, he for whom the heaven of heavens is no worthy throne is clothed for us in prison garb and tastes for us the prison shame. Hence the spirit records he was taken from prison and from judgment. In approaching this truth, it is well to ask the amazing question, by whom was Jesus arrested? And often to ponder the more amazing reply, he was arrested by the justice of God. But why? Had any fault stained his path? The bare thought is chilling as the shock of blasphemy. Let it be met with a shudder of denial. Holiness was the essence of his being, the pulse of his soul. He was born the holy child, Jesus. He lived the holy man, Jesus. He died the holy sufferer. He rose the holy conqueror. He ascended in holy triumph. Holiness is the scepter of his kingdom forever. How then could justice touch him with a jailer's grasp? Because though no shade of sin was in him, still mountains of sins were upon him. Although infinitely far from personal offense, he stood before God laden with all the countless transgressions of a countless multitude. Here is the godlike grace of God. He consents to remove guilt from the guilty and to place it on the guiltless. He transfers the sins of the sinful to his sinless son. Wondrous is the word, but true as wondrous, the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. So Jesus is our sin-bearing surety. 
He appears by substitution as covered, defiled, deformed by the whole accumulated mass of all our guilt. He is very accounted and verily treated as the perpetrator of every evil deed, as the speaker of every evil word, as the harborer of every evil thought, which had stained or should stain each child in the redeemed family. Hence we understand the agony of his heart. My iniquities have taken hold upon me. They are more than the hairs of my head. He presents his back to receive the hateful load. Justice finds it on him, and therefore justly claims him as his prisoner. O my soul, have you by faith a saving interest in Christ? Then know your full relief. He snaps the chain which would have dragged you down to hell. He passes under the dark waters of your pollution that you may be reckoned clear of every stain. He becomes your unrighteousness that you may be the righteousness of God in him. The Bible is a sealed book. The story of the cross is a beclouded page. Peace is a delight untasted. Hope is an idle fiction until Jesus is prized as a substitute and a surety. How great the change when he is so revealed. Then justice shines in all its glory, grace in all its brightness, mercy in all its triumphs, salvation in all its riches. Then the gospel trumpet sounds with power. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. But in the Egyptian dungeon, we see more than a resemblance of the blameless Jesus bearing blame. Transactions are transacted there, which help to unclasp the records of the empire of grace. There are two offenders of no common note by Joseph's side. Human judgment looks in vain for difference between them. They are similar in outward calling, involved in like displeasure and degradation, expecting like ignominious end. But soon they are parted. One mounts the path of favor and is crowned with honors. The other is left in bonds to die. Such is the relation. And by the way, so you notice what she's talking about, right? The baker and the, and the cupbearer, right? The one is restored to favor. The other is executed, right? Because they both end up in prison. And that's what he's playing off. The two that, he, that Joseph was with are, he's, he's uh, drawing a parallel between the two offenders that Joseph is with, with the two offenders that Jesus was with. He says, but, there, but it is uh, there, but in it there is a predictive picture. It is a signal of the distant wonders of the cross. When man's rage and Satan's craft seem to prevail and Jesus is led as a lamb to the slaughter, a corresponding circumstance occurs. To fill the cup of insult to the brim, notorious culprits are linked as his befitting companions. But this studied effort to degrade him to the level of the vilest sons of infamy only attests his truth. The word which cannot fail had said he was numbered with the transgressors. Behold the fulfillment. He is uplifted between two malefactors. When will vain men learn that uh, that opposing rage only works out the purposes of God? The wildest rebellion is yoked to the chariot of his counsels and his will. But let us draw nearer and trace the coinciding features of the two events. We take our station at Calvary. The accursed trees are upraised. The three are are transfixed thereon. Jesus hangs in the midst. Reader, again and again I beseech you, be often at this spot. That cross is the price of countless souls, the ransom of all the redeemed, and the glory of God in the highest. He knows nothing of sin's remission, who makes not these words his covert. He will never taste life, who washes not in the fountain here opened. He only enters heaven who pleads this who pleads this plea. Jesus here suffers that he may wrest the scepter from the hands of Satan, overthrow the empire of darkness, and cause every perfection of Jehovah to be a pledge for salvation. 
It is a truth to be maintained before all the world that the religion which glories not in the blood of the Lamb is but a superstition of ignorance and conceit. The blood besprinkled hope alone can live. We look next to those who writhe in torture on each side. It seems that they both begin to die, hard as the very nails which pierce them. But soon a change, as great as light from darkness, life from death, love from hate passes over the one. He loathes the sin which once he fondled. He confesses its enormous malignity, and he professes to fear the God whom he has scorned. But from where is this newness of every feeling? It is not the fruit of outward circumstance. All visible appearances are common to them both. But one alone is touched and taught and enlightened and turned. How is he thus softened? Some invisible power has entered the recesses of his heart and there crushed every godless foe. It can only be the spirit of the Most High. It is his sole prerogative to convince of sin. Without him, the outward fact of trial, affliction, pain, suffering, warning, threat, entreaty never opens the blinded eye or turns the wandering feet. Whenever awakened conscience cries, Behold, I am vile, I loathe and abhor myself, omnipotence is aimed the blow which brought the rebel to his knees. But more than this, a trusting eye now gazes upon Jesus. To the mocking mob he seems a worm and no man, but through all the rags and poverty of humanity, through all the disguise of blood and infamy, faith knows the King of Kings, the conqueror of Satan, the divine deliverer, the all-subduing Savior. The shameful cross is discerned as the glorious high throne of incarnate deity. Here again we see the mighty Spirit's work. He alone can show Jesus to the soul. But when he speaks the word, the despised and rejected of men is loved and adored as the chief among ten thousand, the altogether lovely one, the one dispenser of the mercies of salvation. But this is not all. A man may confess, I have sinned and yet perish. Such was the case of Judas. The knowledge of the head may boast, we know you, who you are, and never obtain life. Such is the case of the devils. To gain interest in Christ, there must be a personal application to him close dealing with him but when the soul is deeply taught its need and sees that christ alone can minister relief it cannot be kept back it receives a strength which bursts all fetters wades through oceans of difficulty surmounts mountains of obstacles and never rests until safe in his sheltering arms it hears the welcome of his lips it was so with the dying thief mark his cry lord remember me i am perishing but you can save me the flames of hell almost encompass me, but you can rescue me. Lord, remember me. Reader, is your need less than his? No, for it is, for it is great as need can be, and things infinite admit not of comparison. Is your loss less precious than his? Is your eternity less eternal? It cannot be. Have you then cried with this intensity, Lord, remember me? Happy they whose hearts thus wrestle with the Lord. They win the priceless prize of heaven. They gain the matchless gain of everlasting joy. It was so with the dying thief, so it will always be. Quick is the heart of Christ to feel and swift his word to cheer. This day you shall be with me in paradise. There is no doubt, no demur, no delay. A sinner mourns, the Savior pities. A, savior looks, a sinner looks, the Savior smiles. A sinner speaks, the Savior hears. A sinner prays, the Savior answers. The petition is, remember. The grant is, you shall be with me. Blessed sorrow, blessed faith, blessed prayer, blessed grace, blessed Savior, you are worthy to be called Jesus. 
You are worthy to reign on the throne of the adoring heart. You are worthy to be extolled with every breath. You are worthy to be proclaimed by every lip and every climate and every age. You are worthy to be the eternal hymn of eternal hallelujahs. It may be that I address some who, through many years of worldly-mindedness and unbelief, have been tottering on the precipice of perdition. But you yet live, and Christ still lives, and the Spirit has ever a heart of tenderness and an arm of power. Therefore there is hope. The door, though closing, is not yet closed. The thief pressed forward and found grace. He had a golden moment. He seized it, and he is now with Jesus. What will you do? Will you sit still and perish? But perhaps Satan, that liar from the beginning, is suggesting the thought that a deathbed will bring grace to repent and to believe and to seek mercy. Believe him not. Was it so with the other thief? The gnawing of agony only hardened him. Hell was near, but he neither saw nor feared nor shunned it. And now from the midst of a fiery lake he warns as a frightful beacon that death approaching with sure tread and touching with strong hand neither changes the heart nor begets faith. But let me rather hope that you have drunk deep truly of the cup of life. If so, you differ, you widely differ, you infinitely differ from former self and from the mass around. But from where is the difference? Surely you will gratefully allow. Sovereign love looked lovingly on me. Conquering grace dealt graciously with me. Surely you will add, by the power of sin I was what I was. By the grace of God I am what I am. Sin numbered me with transgressors, but eternal purpose and eternal love laid help for me on one that is mighty. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, that I might be numbered with his saints in everlasting glory. So there we see a very Christ-centered application of that one idea that Joseph is there numbered with the transgressors. He's raised out eventually, right? Um, Eventually the Lord raises him up. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams and he's brought to power. He opens the storehouses of grain to the people of Egypt. Um, and, and actually here, I've got some more that I could read of Henry Law again, but I think it's, it's quite long and it might be, might be more than we uh, need to do today. But he has a helpful thing called the storehouses opened, which are talking about all of the, um, the ways in which, like, like Jesus, uh, like Joseph, Joseph right, opened up all the storehouses to feed them. Uh, similarly, we see uh, the ministry of Christ, uh, the bounty that he gives us. Uh, in his mercy and grace. But then eventually in Genesis chapter 42, we read beginning here. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph has risen to power. We know the story. He rises to power and then In God's providence, Jacob has to say, why don't you guys go to Egypt and go buy some grain? This is Charles Spurgeon, God's provision. Famine pinched all the nations, and it seemed inevitable that Jacob and his family should suffer great want. But the God of providence, who never forgets the objects of electing love, had stored a granary for his people by giving the Egyptians warning of the scarcity and leading them to treasure up the grain from the years of plenty. Little did Jacob expect deliverance from Egypt, but there was grain in store for him. Believer, though all things are apparently against you, 
Rest assured that God has made a reservation on your behalf. In the role of your griefs, there is a saving clause. Somehow he will deliver you, and somewhere he will provide for you. Your rescue may come from a very unexpected source, but help will definitely come in your extremity, and you will magnify the name of the Lord. If men do not feed you, ravens will, and if the earth does not yield wheat, heaven will drop manna. Therefore, be of good courage and rest quietly in the Lord. God can make the sun rise in the west if he pleases and can make the source of distress a channel of delight. The grain in Egypt was all in the hands of the beloved Joseph. He opened or closed the granaries at will. And so the riches of providence are all in the absolute power of our Lord Jesus, who will dispense them generously to his people. Joseph was abundantly ready to help his own family, and Jesus is unceasing in his faithful care for his brethren. Our responsibility is to go after the help that is provided for us. We must not sit still in despondency, but stir ourselves. Prayer will bring us quickly into the presence of our royal brother. Once before his throne, we have only to ask and receive. His stores are not exhausted. There is still grain. His heart is not hard. He will give the grain to us. Lord, forgive our unbelief, and this evening constrain us to draw largely from your fullness and receive grace for grace. So God, in his control and sovereign plan, brings Joseph's brothers there. And we see eventually, right, they have to go back to Egypt in 43, and Joseph tests his brothers in 44 before eventually, in chapter 45, he reveals himself to them, right? And we see Judah here says, uh, in this beautiful passage, uh, I think it's in 44, yes, this amazing speech um, that Judah gives, and he says, basically, take me instead of the boy. Uh, he's a, he offers himself as a substitute, which is obviously a picture of the, the substitutionary work of Christ for us, where he comes as our greater Judah and says, take me and let the boy go instead. But then eventually in Genesis 45, we read this in verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? This is from Genesis 45. This is called Joseph's Moment of Truth. It's uh, from it's an excerpt from a book called Graciously Keep Me This Night, written by Steve Chrischel. A few years ago, a 90-year-old German man shuffled into a courtroom. He had lived a life that was more eventful than he cared to admit. He entered the halls of justice, but not to watch a trial. He was on trial. His name was Oscar Groening and he was charged with accessory to murder. He couldn't deny it. Seventy-five years earlier, he had served as a Nazi officer at Auschwitz, one of the concentration camps used to exterminate the Jewish people during World War II. It had taken three quarters of a century, but justice finally caught up to him. He was about to get what he deserved for the crimes he committed, the murder he accomplished. The judge ruled him guilty. He certainly was. For seventy-five years, he had felt guilty. Shame weighed him down. Not a day went by that he didn't think of those people he hurt and killed, the families he separated, the incurable harm he caused. Everyone seemed to be in agreement. When you find a Nazi, even one as old as Oscar Groening, you convict him and sentence him to prison, or even better, to death. 
That's what you do to the enemy, isn't it? You find him, you accuse him, you sentence him to prison for life, or you sentence him to death. And you don't look back. After all, they are the enemy. They should feel pain. They should receive their comeuppance. So what was Egypt second in charge to do when he saw his enemies bowing before him? Joseph had experienced quite a change of fortune since these bowing brothers sold him into slavery. In fact, Joseph's brothers didn't even recognize him, but Joseph recognized them. This was now the second time he had seen them, but this occasion was different. They had brought his brother Benjamin with them. It was all too much for Egypt's leader to take. Overwhelmed by the situation, Joseph hurried himself into his private chamber. All alone, having just seen the brothers who had betrayed him, having seen his own brother, Benjamin, with his own eyes for the first time in years, Joseph wept. This point in Joseph's life stood as a watershed moment. As tears streamed down his cheeks, he considered his next move carefully. This pause in Joseph's day probably felt like an eternity. Joseph had experienced this before. Time must have seemed to stand still during those nights when the sun, moon, and stars bowed to him in his dreams, or when everyone else's sheaves of grain bended low to his. God was fulfilling those childhood dreams in the other room at that very moment. Everything must have stopped when Joseph sat at the bottom of the well, overhearing his brothers coldly deciding his fate as they ate their lunch above him. The nights must have felt long as Joseph pushed away any thoughts of adultery in Pharaoh Potiphar's house. The stillness of Egyptians, Egypt's prison must have worn on into an eternity for the wrongly accused son of Joseph, or of Jacob, excuse me. Perhaps there were even moments when Joseph questioned whether or not those dreams he interpreted for Pharaoh would actually come true. If they didn't, he would probably have been put to death. But the dreams did come true. Now Pharaoh hid him, now Joseph hid himself from everyone as he wept. The Lord gives you backroom moments too. When was the last time the world stood still around you? Perhaps you feel that way right now. The world is paused, nothing moves, and there you are weeping. Do you have brothers like Joseph? Have you wept over the betrayal of someone you trusted? We have all had a close personal friend cut us to the heart. If you sit where Joseph sits, then you also face the choice that Joseph faced. Do you respond with vengeance? Most in this world would not bat an eye if you reciprocated with a betrayal of your own. Satan would love to help you enact it, or at least watch you try. Even the thought of retribution is enough to fall into sin. Sitting in Egypt's royal backroom with Joseph, we sometimes consider rising to rebellion, looking to lop off the heads of our enemies as they kneel before us, at least in our minds. We have lashed out against our betrayers with words that strike more painfully than any dagger. Joseph had been sold into the lowest form of slavery by the very brothers who should have loved him the most. For the exchange of Joseph's life, the brothers received 20 pieces of silver. Perhaps if they had to, they would have given him away for free. The going rate for betrayal had not changed much in two millennia. When Judas agreed to betray his teacher Jesus into the hands of his enemies, he received 30 pieces of silver for the trouble. It was a handsome sum. Unlike Joseph's brothers, Judas would not have to share, share it with anyone. In the end, it wasn't enough. Even that large amount of money could not buy off guilt, Judas's guilty conscience. Throwing it back into the temple, Judas ran out into the tear-filled night and hung himself. There would be no last-minute rescue for the Son of God. Betrayed by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, hated by his rulers and bludgeoned by Roman soldiers, Jesus stood a man apart from the world. On Calvary, he suffered a world's worth of sins. 
Your every betrayal, your every thought of retribution, each one of your cutting words washed away. The king of the world gave his life to remove our sins. Just think of all the ways Jesus could have carried out vengeance against those who had wronged him. He could have called legions of angels to wipe out the soldiers. With a word, he could have sent his false accusers to hell. With the simplest of motions, he could have flicked away his fleeing disciples forever. Yet what does your suffering Savior declare from the cross? Father, forgive them. And you are forgiven. Even you, even me, criminals though we are, guilt-ridden though we may feel, you are forgiven. And now, just as importantly, you get to forgive those around you. The woman who betrayed you? Father, forgive them. The family that wants nothing to do with you and what you believe? Father, forgive them. The man who took something dear from you? Father, forgive them. After his somber moment alone, Egypt's highest foreign-born son returned to the room. They ate, and he sent them away. But, but inside, hidden inside one of their bags was a cup, a reason to make them return. Perhaps it was a final test to make sure his brothers had amended their lives. Judah passed the test. Standing up for his brother, Benjamin, in whose sack the cup was found, Judah offered himself up as a slave in Benjamin's place. It was more than enough. Finally, the wronged brother left for dead. The betrayed sibling who was sold into slavery revealed himself. This Egyptian leader was their brother, Joseph. No retribution remained in his heart, only forgiveness. A family broken by betrayal now healed together. Betraying brothers found forgiveness in Egypt, but what about Nazis in Germany? Of all the people seeking the death of Oscar Groening, that Nazi war criminal, one woman was perhaps most justified. Her name was Eva Kor. Eva was an Auschwitz survivor. Groening had watched as Eva's parents and her two older sisters had been killed. And now that Groening was on trial for his crimes, Eva traveled over to Germany to see him face to face. Everyone who knew this woman must have wondered just how strong her words toward this man would be. How could they not be? He was at least in part responsible for the death of her entire family. What would you say? A final parting shot? Would you give him an angry slap across the face? Or maybe you would just watch as this old man feels his soul torn apart in the courtroom, as evidence mounts against him, slowly pushing him to prison or even execution. After all, it is what he deserves. Eva Kor, her family's sole survivor of Auschwitz, finally met Oscar Groening face to face. She went right up to him, raised her arms up, and hugged him. Then she said the three hardest words she would ever say. I forgive you. And if Eva could forgive Oscar, if Joseph could forgive his brothers, if Jesus could forgive you, then you can forgive also, even your enemy. One last thing I want to read to you uh, from Genesis 45. Highlights again uh, Joseph uh, to us. This is called Come Near to Me, Please, uh, by Daniel Emery Price. There is no shortage of blogs, books, and sermons that use the life of Joseph as a model for Christian living. From not giving up on your God-given dreams, to fleeing sexual temptation, to being faithful in tribulation, Joseph is like proverbial Swiss army knife of godliness. However, the primary point of Joseph's life and every story in scripture is to point us to Christ, to tell us something about what God is like and how he interacts with his creation. In this text, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. 
This is a terrifying thing for them. They have a great, there is a great famine in the land and at the brink of starvation and death. They have journeyed to Egypt to buy food, but only to discover that their fate is in the hands of the brother they rejected, betrayed, sold out, abandoned, and horribly sinned against. These brothers are seeing that same weak little boy they sold into slavery standing right before them as a man with absolute power. The brother they thought was dead by their own doing is very much alive and now holds their collective fate in his hands. The last words you'd expect to hear are, Come near to me, please. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because of everything you've done. God sent me to preserve your life. As we stumble through life, we so often find ourselves weighed down with guilt and shame. We've sinned against people, other people, and we've sinned against God. The devil is quick to tell us that the presence of the holy God is the absolute last place terrible sinners like us will want to be. We've disregarded him so often. We've sold him out. We've abandoned both his law and his love. And yet the truth is this. As we stand distressed in fear and shame, the voice of our brother Jesus showers us with grace. He says, come near to me, please. It's his humble plea to take all that distresses us, to take all our sin and guilt, the shame that goes with it. It's free and complete forgiveness. It's absolution and family reconciliation. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus asks us to come near because he has been sent to preserve our lives. He is the one once rejected, sold out and killed, who now stands in absolute power and is using that power to save the lives of people like you and me, to give us a good forever in his home. Jesus is the greater Joseph who speaks these words not only to 11 brothers, but to a whole world of weary sinners. He is God in the flesh who says to all flesh, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whoever you are and despite all that you've done, Jesus stands in the midst of the wreckage of our sin saying, come near to me, please. I think that's a good place to end. Uh, as we see eventually there, Joseph's family will come to Egypt. Jacob overcomes his disbelief and shock and uh, comes as well to Egypt. Very good. Well, now I want to close with, I think I've got a couple of songs because we had um, a couple of psalms that I wish to close with uh, this week in week five. Um, the first thing I will do here is, okay, we'll do this kind of backwards. I'll do Psalm 23 first. Um, this is uh, different. So I've, I've got one from uh, poor Bishop Hooper, and then one from, uh, this is actually um, the Highland Singers from Scotland, this is a, a Scottish Psalter being sung. So this is Psalm 23 that they're going to sing. Um, and this is kind of kind of like, I mean, this is a trained group, but you could also get an idea of what it might sound like for the Psalms to be sung in a congregation. Because there are churches, and I've actually preached at, a, at least a couple, that sing only the Psalms in worship. In worship. And um, so you can kind of get a taste of that. So we'll hear Psalm 23 because that's one of the Psalms we're going to do. And then we'll close. I'll come back and I'll, and I'll wrap up real quick. Um, and then we will do Psalm 22 from poor Bishop Hooper. So let's do Psalm 23 first. And, and then uh, we will wrap up with Psalm 22 uh, with poor Bishop Hooper, that, that couple group again. 
Well, that was Psalm 23 uh, being sung by the, uh, I feel like one of those guys on public radio um, doing that, you know, like that was uh, that was Bach's third concerto you know, performed by the, um, yeah, anyway, kind of funny. So anyway, that's Psalm 23 um, by the Highland Singers. Uh, that's kind of an idea, giving you an idea of what, what it sounds like whenever a congregation uh, sings the psalms uh, like that. But here is another thing, kind of an artistic uh, rendition. Not a literal thing, I don't think, of the psalms. They don't do, but they kind of do inspired uh, music off of each of these psalms. This is poor Bishop Hooper with Psalm 22. And we will close with this, and I will be with you next week. Take care, and God bless.
trusted you and they were saved could I cry out to you in the very same way bring me up out of darkness about a darkness about a darkness into the place you made Yeah. 